For March 25th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 560. You escape suffering by getting rid of your attachment to Jamba Juice. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together and talking over the things that interest us. This week, uh, not a new show that dropped on Netflix, but a show that uh, is interesting and dropped on Netflix a while back, giving us all enough time to watch it. Uh, Natasha Leone's uh, Russian Doll. I guess I shouldn't call it Natasha Leone's Russian Doll, but she is one of the creators, producers, and the star, uh, the main character of this show on Netflix. It will include spoilers, so if you have not seen Russian Doll, you should pause this podcast and not listen until you've seen it because uh, the revelation of information is an important kind of mechanic through which uh, this game is played in this particular show. So uh, if you are still with us, very excited to have you and talk about Russian Doll. I'm Matt Rather. I am here uh, with my very good friends, including some... some uh, Non uh, non regular, not you're you're all regular. Some irregular podcasters. Uh, I, I mean that not uh, not. Never mind. <laughs> we need podcast brand, is what you are saying. <laughs> I realized. I realized. I stepped right in that joke. <laughs> and, and did did everything I could to avoid it, but like a car barreling down the street that I just don't see, I got that uh, I got that I got that joke all over my face. No, uh, our our good friend Pete Fenzel is stuck in a time loop this week. Uh, he's got to get up, got to get out uh, of his his time loop, so he is not joining us. But uh, we are here with uh, an incredible panel, starting with uh, TFT Punk correspondent Rachel. Rachel D. Rachel, welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. Ah, thank you, Matt. We have our good friend uh, and uh, mistress of the Overthinking It newsletter, which I understand might be making a comeback one of these days, uh, Amanda Jorda Avisati. Amanda, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks. Glad to be back. Uh, my, uh, my good friend and actual New Yorker, uh, Mr. Mark Lee. <laughs> Hello, Mark. That's right, and I lived uh, in the East Village, just uh, around the corner from what you, a lot of what you see in the show. So I'll have stuff to say about it, I think. Probably. And and uh, <laughs> my good friend and uh, and co-host of the TFT podcast, Ryan Sheely. Hey, Ryan, how you doing? Is Russian doll for real? <laughs> That's my question for you, <laughs> Matt. I have a question. No, we can't troll each other as much. But since uh, since we have, let's uh, let's just check in with everybody before we go. Since we have Ryan and, and Rachel here, and, and the uh, the music podcast has been on hiatus, or as we like to think of it, sabbatical uh, for a little while. Uh, Ryan and Rachel, what are you guys listening to these days? Other than "Gotta Get Up, Gotta Get Out." Well, I've been listening a lot. To uh, the Bad Bunny album that dropped on Christmas Eve, um, Siempre, and it's it's just really good. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's 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 a you know it, unlike a lot of um, I think contemporary like rap albums, it is not you know forty million songs songs long, each of which are meant to like produce the most streams. It's like actually an album. Uh, the songs all work together really well. It's concise. Uh, the genres are, you know, like are like very varied. Um, and it just it sounds like a very it just sounds very like contemporary and like it, it just cool. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it, but like it, it just there's a lot of like variety. And I think there's like something for everyone. And, you know, I think you can enjoy it whether or not you speak or understand spanish it's just it's like a very good like you know contemporary like hip-hop album fantastic ryan uh, do you have do you have one you want to add to the list or uh, are you uh, listening to bad bunny also 
Oh, I mean, I, I absolutely am. Uh, <laughs> the uh, other thing I'm listening to as, as far as new records go is a record called Highway Hypnosis by Sneaks, uh, which is a Sneaks is a started as a, a one woman DC po- post punk band that has started to morph into something sort of like reminiscent of early MIA, a kind of cross genre, a little bit of punk, a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of world music. Uh, and it's just really, really fun to listen to and a, and a good listen. So I recommend everyone check it out. Fantastic. If I- either of those appeals to you, you, you might like the TFT podcast, which has a voluminous back catalog, uh, even if new episodes aren't being produced right now. Uh, Amanda, I understand that you have become a uh, an assistant chocolatier, or is it assistant to the chocolatier? No, I'm kidding. You're an apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> apprentice. Yes, I'm Dwight in my workplace. <laughs> um, apprentice chocolatier, and chocolatier. You, are, you are making the chocolat. Yes, I'm making the chocolat. I'm Julia Benoche. <laughs> That's fantastic. How is what's new in the chocolate game? Uh, St. Patty's Day just happened, so we have Guinness chocolate now. It's oh, well, delicious. You if you like Guinness, if you don't like Guinness, it's it's very Guinnessy. <laughs> oh, fantastic! The the answer I was looking for was the chocolate game didn't change; it just got more fierce. <laughs> Um, but I'm I'm still waiting. I sent you my address. I am waiting for my uh, yes. hand handmade parcel of of artisan you will get it soon. of artisan chocolates. And uh, Mark, you teased a little bit that you are uh, that you were actually a, a resident of the neighborhood, the kind of Lower East Side yeah. uh, neighborhood that this um, that this show was set in, largely. So uh, my question for you is: Is Bohemia dead? Yes. Okay, moving That's along. That's an unqualified yes. It is, it is totally dead. Did, did, did you feel like the show reflected the neighborhood accurately? Um, yes. Yeah, it did. Actually, okay, so to, to, to claw that back a little bit, Bohemia, it may not be dead, but it is like in a very uneasy coexistence with um, the, the new New York of wealth and capitalism. Uh, particularly in that neighborhood. So I guess let's just go ahead and get into it, right? Like the location of this show setting uh, is super, super important, not just because of the aesthetic or the fact there happens to be a park there, which allows you to have a drifter in there. Um, it is like um, it, it, the whole story is this all collision of different worlds of the past Bohemian New York, of the drifters, um, of this past of, you know, New Tompkins Square Park, where there was a bunch of like uh, heroin and drug use there. And then the new New York as represented by all sorts of different things, right? particularly the character of Alan, but also um, things that come and go, like the Wall Street bros that show up in the bodega. Um, it, uh, it, 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 it's like a great uh, union of place um, and, and story as well. So just I'm a little back history for myself and then I'll pass it over to others to, um, to, to weigh in on this. But like, I was kind of, you know, I, I, for young professionals moving into the East village of, you know, over the last like 20, 20 some odd years, like every one of us played a part in this sort of gentrification. Right. And then, you know, some level of pushing out, um, bohemian slash, um, you know, m- minority people who have been in the neighborhood for a long time and then bringing something else in. And it's an interesting mix, um, but also like it creates a sense of loss that like a neighborhood character is going away. So um, that's how that's that's like one of many reasons why I enjoy the show is because like I kind of experienced it in a, in a very small fractional kind of way. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys thought, uh, uh, you know, uh, can resonate with any of that without having lived in the neighborhood. Like, do you feel like the story and the place intersected? I mean, yes, absolutely. And there's kind of a fan, uh, an influential fan theory, um, or I guess a critical theory that, that, I mean, really with Twitter, every critical theory is a fan theory and every fan theory is a critical theory. But the. Uh... No, no, it's AIDS. AIDS did that, or Matt. Like, <laughs> on us. It's not the internet. It's AIDS changed the critical landscape. <laughs> I mean, I, here's the thing it didn't not change the critical landscape, right? Like, uh, in a way, everything changes the, the critical landscape. But, but I mean, so, okay, on, on its surface level, Russian Doll is a Groundhog Day like. 
uh, story about a woman and and we discover later also a man uh, who are caught in kind of psychologically induced time loops. And like Groundhog Day uh, or like a sort of video game, and she's a video game designer, which you know turns out to be mildly important, to un- mildly thematically important to understanding what's going on, there is kind of a, a, a blessed path, you know, uh, that you have to walk. And it has to do with, like, concern for others and, and getting out of your own head and sort of reading the room, you know, in the case of Alan, uh, or um, realizing that, that that other people have needs that are are legitimate and like it's not getting out of sort of narcissism which is her, what her uh you know her problem is like um even her guilt is sort of narcissistic the the you know but but it's really so this is a and it's the, as these things are uncovered right as the kind of the the psychological layers are are peeled back this is done in a it, using the metaphor of like a time loop of kind of repeating yourself uh, over and over and over again, finding yourself stuck in the same patterns, wanting to get out, not really knowing how and being held back by your own psychology to a certain extent. But like the, the thing that, that people get uh, that I think that the hook and the thing that people get excited about and actually a potential kind of orthogonal access of thematic material that, um, you know that we're referring to has to do with the the uh, milieu that the story is set in the uh, kind of the styles kind of stylistic uh, things heightened language banter um, yeah uh, one one critic the one with the fan theory that I think we'll get to talking about says that she talks like Andrew Dice Clay you know and she does have that but uh, that kind of um, I, I won't say exaggerated because actual human beings talk that way but that pronounced uh, New York accent and a, a certain way with a witticism that uh, with a you know zingy punchline that Andrew Dice Clay kind of made his stock in trade and that and like it's it's these and then like uh, costume design photography things like this um, make it uh, kind of make it unique and make it make it hooky I mean I guess actually this is kind of an interesting way in like. If you had to pick one, uh, whoever feels like jumping in on this, jump in. If you had to pick one, are you more attracted to the sort of psychological story of overcoming trauma, or are you more attracted to the, you know, the soundtrack, the lighting, the costumes, the way it's shot, and the 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 way it's written, the sort of style, or do you see those two as inextricable somehow? Uh, I, I choose uh, option C. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what, I mean, may, and uh, maybe it's closer to the style, but I think it's the the sense of humor and and comedy that actually gets me. And but not just in the zingy writing and um and 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 the writing of the character, but I think specifically for me, the moment where I think I watched the first episode, um, like first episode and a half, and was like, all right, this is this is pretty compelling, and it hit the mix of both the kind of personal metaphorical trauma and the kind of vibes. And then it's the sequence um, where she is repeatedly falling down the stairs and dying, um, which is like, and and it's in the way that it's played. And actually I think in that same episode is when she back to back falls down the open grate, either side of the open um, sewer grate or, or kind of uh, basement grate. Um, And, and just uh, the way that she plays the physical comedy of the falls of just with such kind of abandon um and there's lots of other moments of of comedy that are there um and, and maybe that's the glue between this two pieces of the kind of this metaphor of overcoming trauma and uh and the place um and 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 i do think that there is a certain new york coping strategy in that right that that um and i think she even kind of describes herself as sounding like andrew dice clay and looking like the girl from brave i believe is how she describes it um and and that kind of that kind of like there's in I think it's the last episode she talks with Alan's neighbor right who um, the old guy who tells her to stop smoking um and there's like a long kind of 
joking uh, interchange about, um, well, like the, uh, how life is like a box of timelines, uh, and this guy's wife in some other timeline is probably, you know, on a beach riding on a horseback, smoking with Fabio. Um, and there's this like, there's this really interesting, like loose kind of banter that also is um is like hey well take hey be careful take care of yourself um and and just like the the flow of that is this very if you've lived in new york and kind of encountered like new yorkers who have lived in new york for a few generations there there was something very authentic about that and about like the support network of old new york um that was that was there and and it's kind of interesting to think about how this kind of phrase and or regenerates right in this gentrifying neighborhood of the East village and kind of the ways in which, um, you know, older, uh, East villagers intersect with the yuppies and intersect with the Tompkins square gutter pugs. And so I do think that it all, it all comes together. And, and I, I do think just that that sense of humor and that like regionally specific sense of humor is for me, a lot of the glue. Can we take a brief detour and talk about the smoking? <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's really important. Yeah. Um, so um, the 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 and I it goes it does connect to this idea of like you know the 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 overall metaphorical nature of the story and then the kind of milieu and the atmosphere and all that kind of stuff um, because like the smoking kills right I mean that's kind of um, the, the obvious statement and it it's it's a commentary think on on, on mortality um, and and the, the somewhat self destructive nature of Natasha. Uh, the, the Natasha Leon's character, I guess she's a cockroach. Um, and, but also, like the milieu aspect is is important because um, uh, it, it, this is not something you see anymore in in New York. I guess maybe in the most bohemian circles, but copious amounts of smoking indoors at a party um, is really something of the past, and um, it, it speaks to the 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 the, the certain timeless nature. Of this, I'm not lauding it, by the way. You know, there's all sorts of problems with depicting smoking on screen, um, even with something that's kind of like niche and um, very purpose built as this. But um, it was really notable to me that the characters smoked a lot, and there's tons and tons of smoking on screen. Did I, that jump out to anyone else? Yeah, no, I, I do think you're right that there is like um. It's funny because I, it, I, you know, the show doesn't say sort of when it takes place, but it, it's so obviously in this like milieu of like uh, older millennials slash young Gen Xers and Gen Xers that it almost could just take place like 10, 15 years ago. Um, right. It's in the early 2000s of the mind. Of the mind. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You know, it, it's so, it, you know, I don't know when it's supposed to take place necessarily, but I agree with you that the smoking is kind of, um, I mean, it's like of another time. And I do think it is kind of, I, I, I think part of the, I don't know. I think it is part of the larger thematic ideas about like being self-hating or having a death wish and mm-hmm. um, and being kind of having like a, a bizarre relationship to death, mm-hmm. like, choose, you know, thinking that you want to choose death rather than life over and over again by doing something that like everyone now cannot say doesn't kill you. It is interesting. If I remember correctly, her first death uh, in the very first episode is that she's she goes home with Mike, kicks him out, um, is stays up coding, and then um, sees that she's out of cigarettes and goes out, sees oatmeal, darts across the street, and gets hit by um, a uh, gets hit by a taxi. Right. So mm-hmm. and so it is like the cigarettes killed, but even faster than than promised. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think in that same scene, right before she notices that she's out um, of cigarettes, you see that her poster that appears a few other times, her poster that says life is a killer. Right. Um, and uh, and so I do think that these kind of various layers. Yeah, it's, it's totally it's totally right on. Um, what even is a bohemian and does it matter anymore? I mean, I I asked, I asked Wikipedia and it said that, uh, uh, a bohemian is a resident of Bohemia, the, uh, 19th century, (laughs) (laughs) you know, no, um, like what, what, when we're talking, I mean, I feel like we're talking about 
life. When we're talking about these things, we're talking about sort of lifestyle a lot. And the choice, the kind of the lifestyle choice to smoke is like very, very against the grain of, of mainstream society now. And is that, uh, you know, is she, you know, is this, this Natasha Leone with her, her smoking and her Andrew Dice Clay and her brave and her uh, mm-hmm. shoulder pads, uh, is she even a bohemian? You know, I think that's an interesting question um, because I, I actually I do think there's something about like everyone in the show that is a little bit uh, to me sort of like not totally explained or like kind of unexamined. Like, I mean, I don't know if you guys all watch Maxine's apartment and you're like, what is this place? How did she afford it? Like, what what is this situation? <laughs> right? yeah, but she, she's, fa- um, she's family money, though. Like the one that got me was the literature grad students. Apartment. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. We had the same. Yes, totally. <laughs> right. The most unrealistic thing in this TV show with time loops and reincarnation <laughs> is that a Ph.D. student has a uh, her own one bedroom apartment anywhere in New York. And that's large enough for like a large dining room. Yeah, table. with a dining room. A dining room. Oh, had a dining room. I mean, that's like Park Avenue wealth. That's not. <laughs> that's not PhD program at City College wealth at all. No, that's that's nicer than many of the apartments in Gossip Girl. Yeah, I mean, like t- t- yeah, exactly. Writing about uh, Updike and the suburban imaginary just does not get you those things. <laughs> no, it's yeah, yeah. That was that that definitely that definitely jumped out. Um, and, and you know, so I, it, there are a lot of like people in the world where I'm sort of do wonder, like, like where do they fit in within the old and the new, right? Like, is I, and I think that I actually, and maybe that is part of the answer, is that it's like, um, it is like about like this older milieu of the Lower East Side, kind of like commingling uneasily with like their new identities and roles, and like this newer, newer Lower East Side and these newer economies, right? Um, you know, where like, for, for all we know, like, you know, I don't know, Maxine got in early on this yeshiva, right? Like, uh, you know, or, or she does have family wealth, right? And it's all kind of, it's all kind of hard. You know, it's not like the lines are not very clear cut, right? As to like, and I think there is something like kind of what Mark was getting at. I, I think there is a kind of with like gentrification also comes like a kind of co-opting and commercialization of like counterculture and art. Um, and so, and I think in that same way, like they're all kind of living these identities where like they're, you know, they're part of this older New York, but they're also part of whatever is sort of like the new, the new structural changes of New York. Right. <laughs> and then the gentrification. I mean, it is, you know, it, we were dancing around it, but in talking about bohemianism and the gentrification of the East village, right. It is, it's rent, right. This is post rent, right. It's mortgage payment. Right. Um, and <laughs> uh, I guess it's also in, in kind of the, almost a death of bohemianism, right. It's not more bohem. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and the, you know, rent was this kind of, uh, singing the praises of, of this kind of um, hipster, proto hipsterism, um, intellectual lifestyle, right? A glorification of the beats and kind of uh, pre hippies. And this is a place where some of that residue is still there, but is what enabled gentrification, right? And enabled mm-hmm. this to become, you know, colonized by, by, you know, more of these kind of uh, by the bros and by the Allens and, 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 and everyone else. Right, because one of the tragedies of rent, you know, is that like um, one of the tragedies of rent is that there was never a second draft written of that musical. No, uh, one of the tragedies of rent (laughs) is that the sort of in its uh, kind of gleefully and joyfully taking up the mantle of the otherness that that, you know, square society wants to uh, saddle these these artists and and uh, you know young people with like in in um, to take a lyric from Rent which I know uh, embarrassing well embarrassingly well uh, in in being an us for once instead of a them right the youth the vitality the energy the generativity and creativity 
sensitivity of that movement and of that sort of time and place, that group of people is what made it attractive for colonization. Right. 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 Like it was like, it was like this sort of untouched, you know, quasi feral little corner of, of the city alphabet city. Right. Like, um, and it, it, it just they developed their natural resources and then they got colonized and that was uh you know that was sort of interesting i mean in a in a uh, in a New York Times article that had um, some information about this area, Tompkins Square Park in the middle of Alphabet City, the the um, and a riot that took place there in I guess nineteen eighty eight um, the the New York Times, the contemporary New York Times in the eighties reported on uh, reported on apartments going up that cost almost four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I know <laughs> highway robbery, an apartment in on the Lower East Side that costs four hundred fifty thousand dollars. And if you don't get, ah. if, <laughs> ah. <laughs> get off my lawn, kids. Uh, <laughs> get off my Tompkins Square Park lawn, kids. You, you gutter punks. The um, like, if you don't get that joke, it's today. It's tens of millions, right? At the very high end. So. You know, but but I mean, I don't know. Was it? I mean, was it ever thus? Right? Like the 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 show makes it seem like it's an irregular thing to live with the past and present colliding, to live with the you know high and low wealth colliding, high and low culture colliding. Um, right? But but I don't know. Was it ever thus? Bohemia is dead, or it isn't dead, but it's always being mourned. Uh, as as though it were dead and that's you know that might be a characteristic of it that might be a characteristic of these sorts of kind of social moments or social movements um that that uh that you know there we're always kind of waving we're always kind of waving goodbye to them and we always showed up at the party uh mm-hmm. a little too late I, you know, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I'll put aside any sort of arguments people might make about, like, no, the um, the scale and speed of gentrification has gone, like, progressively worse. Because I think there's, like, but I'm going to put that aside because I kind of agree with you that I do think there's a kind of, uni- to me at least, I mean, when I lived in New York, there is a universal feeling of, like, New York is constantly changing around you, Mm -hmm. sometimes at a pace that, like, outstrips, like, your emotional capacity to deal with those changes, right? Like, you can be living in New York and find that everything you liked and all your routines are, like, gone, right? And then that happens just, like, frequently, and people move, right? They leave, they come, they go. So, you know, in some ways, like the experience of like going to this party again and again and more and more people disappearing is there is this quality to like just living in New York feels that way, Um, which allows her like, you know, I think she like gravitates in some ways to the the few constants that are in the neighborhood. Right. Like the deli and Tompkins Square Park. There's like a very like small little like a walking radius she's partaking in that has these like very clear like constants um, around like a a New York, like around her that is like probably constantly like shuttering businesses and opening new ones and new people are leaving and coming. And and, and, it just constantly is outstripping like the emotion, your emotional capacity to deal with it. Yeah, and just as a you know a story, you know we most recently spent a lot of time in New York three three years ago when we were planning our New York and wedding in New York, and recently a friend um, from Boston was going for a weekend to New York and asked for some recommendations. And as I started looking up uh, all of the places that we were going, only I think at that time it was like maybe two and a half years ago, they're all closed. <laughs> all like all of the things that we had been going to just a few years ago are already gone. Right. And so it is this, um, you know, constant thing, uh, that it is like, there is this, 
it's a constant ship of Theseus, right? That it is like the bricks are being removed and replaced uh, at so frequently that like the structure seems as if it's there, but then you realize that the whole thing is changing over again and again. Um, and that's so, so, yeah, uh, that's like the yeshiva, for example, still has the inscription in Hebrew, right, right, right. over it, and like the the facade of that building is probably is probably unchanged. I mean, in terms of what gets photographed in the show and what doesn't get photographed, right? There are no juice bars. There are no yoga studios. There are no Chase Bank branches uh, that show mm. up in the exterior mm. shots of this. It's all, you know, brownstones and all kind of pre-war buildings and all, you know, the the like the uh, old New York, New York. So it has that, I mean, it has that look. It has that aesthetic. But, you know, what's inside the, the um, art or the technology companies or the, you know, um, all the the things that you do to live life, um, the what the the gig economy delivery service that brings Alan his like you know pile of of angel food cake or whatever it is like yeah. those those things are all you know very very of the moment and though she. Um, she uh, seems to kind of aesthetically be a part of the old New York and kind of in her soul and in her character. And I guess she, she grew up there, right? And, uh, you know, belongs to this this old time. And, like, by the way, old New York, right? You, 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 there are so many old New Yorks. Is it the Beats, you know? Is it Bob Dylan hanging out uh, in in Greenwich Village? Is it When This Show Depicts, which is, the, the like, the late 80s and early 90s? You know, um, this is, is it the time of, you know, uh, post Giuliani and that, uh, you know, is it pre nine 11 New York? Like what, what is old, you know, old is always, you know, old is always, um, sort of relative, but, but she's, you know, d- despite kind of spiritually belonging to old New York materially, she's a computer programmer. Like she has a good six figure job, you know, in the, the kind of the new economy, she makes video games, right? Like she's part of the problem, uh, a little bit, part of the, the social force that is, um, lapping away at and eroding the kind of the bulwark of the old, uh, the old culture that coexists uneasily, uneasily alongside it. Uh, so I thought it was interesting that Matt, um, Ryan mentioned Ship of Theseus because I feel like that's kind of what's happening to the characters too with the whole repetition. And I think one big theme in the show is like the process of therapy, like revisiting trauma over and over again until you finally figure out what happened, what went wrong, and how you can fix it. And that's kind of a Ship of Theseus C process, you know, where like you're changing slowly. And when you look back, it's a totally different person. But throughout the process, it you can't really see the differences happening. Yeah, and, no, I, oh yeah, no, sorry. Oh uh, no, and uh, just another thing it reminded me of is uh, our, the TFT episode on Joanna Newsom uh, and Sepakonica and how it's about the city and all the layers and all the things that used to be and aren't anymore. And, mm. I don't know, just see a connection uh, between that and the show. That's a deep cut. I'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> sorry, Rachel, didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of like kind of where we're all circling around is this kind of idea. Like, I think like New York is then kind of related to the psychological trauma of the characters. New York is like a site of trauma mm-hmm. for like a lot of people. Right. And it's like, and it's like, it's not even just the bigger traumas we think of like 9-11 and or the stuff AIDS, the AIDS or crisis. the AIDS crisis. So, yeah. But it's, it's also these little, little traumas we're talking about, about like the routine of your life eroding away. Right. And in some ways, there's a lot like uh, I feel like there is something here about like her psychological trauma is also this kind of like trauma about being like a survivor. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, like this guilt of surviving through things and surviving through these like sites of through this like mass trauma that is like being experienced. I mean, it is also like the like living a, a single day in New York City is being a survivor. Right. And there is something <laughs> that's in the part of what is funny about the comedy of this is you know, having lived in New York, all of the ways that she dies are things you fear about living in New York, like falling just into a hole or like over a river or <laughs> electrocution or a swarm of 
of bees on the subway, right? And, and it is, like, well, I have never thought about a swarm yeah, of bees that, on that the one, subway. That one, not so much, but still well, a delightful then, touch. Uh, well, that's why then you're not going to make it a day a day longer in New York. You gotta the, the threats are all around you. You gotta have the mindset of a cockroach. <laughs> I mean, I do think uh, one thing that that I you know where I think these pieces come together is that yeah the the physical environment is is very dangerous um, sort of to children. Right. Like as a child, it's when you're you're the most vulnerable to things and like even normal things that that we take for granted and use every day, electric sockets, tools, knives, you know, uh, cars, stuff that's not um, particularly threatening. If you have the the skills to deal with them, um, those things are very threatening if you have uh, if you don't have those skills and you have to be kind of constantly guarded uh, by or at least constantly taught, I, I should say, by the adults around you who are responsible. Now, like one of the things that trauma does is it it sort of traps you at at the point when you had a trauma, and and in her case, uh, it's in Nadia's case, it's um, when she was a child, right, and dealing with the the sort of trauma of, of growing up with her erratic and, and mentally ill mother, and that's like uh, and all the kind of dislocations that this forced upon her as a as a young girl, and so she's sort of she's sort of. Um, she's sort of stuck there as a child, and, and and when the like the manifestation of that stuckness, the manifestation of that kind of like traumatic repetition, is suddenly becoming physically vulnerable uh, to things around the city again, the way a child would be, right? Right, right. Yeah, I think that's right on, and I think that there's also a point where, um, and and that's why the the relationship with Ruth is so central as who was a person who was you know tasked with protecting her and raising her and earlier on i think when she first meets alan and he comes to the party with her right she's even describes alan i think to john as like a child that the universe has uh, tasked her with protecting right <laughs> um and and i think though in this idea of getting to the child right that if you think about right the russian doll right um in the name and right yeah. and uh matryoshka doll right is that at the center of the layers of the doll is, is a baby right um and and so I think that, and and so I think that the lifting up of the layers of the the doll, or kind of it's also like peeling back the layers of an onion, right? Relate to these the various um, instances of um, psychotherapy, psychotherapy and therapeutic practice that show up, uh, and also even. Uh, Nadia's own practice of of looking for clues and investigating, right? And there are these moments where, you know, either in the game of the show, right, there things are unlocked and you kind of go a level deeper into the doll, um, or the moments of breakthrough um, in therapy, right? And we, we see this in with Ruth's. Um, we, right, we, we there's one scene where we Ruth has a client who's kind of has this breakthrough moment about intimacy in his marriage, right? Right before Nadia shows up, um, and then there are, are these moments of breakthrough, whether it's specifically in therapy or kind of in this kind of collective group therapy of of. Of protecting and and supporting each other and kind of finding and protecting that the the child within. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, what what the what's the point of therapy, right? Like that that's an interesting. Like, protecting the child within is one way of thinking about it. Like, self knowledge maybe yeah. is another way of thinking about it. Self protection, right? Like, I guess people go into therapy because they're unable to cope for some reason. They're unable to like life becomes intolerable uh, I for think, them. Sorry, but to use a metaphor from the show, basically, I think the point of therapy is to find and get out the glass shards. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so you're yeah. saying you're saying you got to get up, you got to get out, you got to uh, get out the glass shard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> blame, blame your parents before the morning comes. Um, yeah, that's it- that's sorry, yeah, that's interesting. Sorry, Rachel. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting though because it's kind of like a. I mean, maybe I might be speaking out of ignorance about therapy, but I feel like it's different from I think kind of newer trends of therapy that are more like kind of like life hacky like mind hacky cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Where you're like constantly just trying to think about reframing things in like a different way or kind of like looking at your thoughts as like more of these like kind of mental noise that needs to be sort of like re-narrativized or reframed. 
Um, and I feel like this is more like a kind of older kind of school of thought about, you know, that is like centered around like thinking about childhood trauma and like things that your mother did, right? Well, it's interpretive, right? And it's R- interpretive, Ruth, Ruthie yeah. always has these, like, you know, going to these symbolic interpretations of of the mirrors, right, Of uh, and of a few other kind of, you know, pieces where her, her style is to go to what is the symbolism of this image or of this desire, right? So the, yeah, and that to me feels more old school. I don't know. I don't know if anyone else has like a different view. Or... It is no, it is. It's absolutely more old school. The the like the current threat trend in therapy, both because. Well, it's it's kind of a it's a sticky wicket because it's evidence based. Uh, it's evidence based because the times of treatments tend to be much shorter, and the outcomes um, tend to be a lot more kind of operationalizable. Like I've I've stopped smoking is a lot easier to track, or I I still smoking cessation cessation has continued for ninety days is a lot easier to track than like I fundamentally understand myself in a new way, <laughs> right? And this this sort of the kind of the new, like, really diving in and constructing this new narrative of myself, like, three years later, helped me not to fall into the same trap in a relationship that I fell into over and over and over. But I just, there's one little detail from the show that I want to point out. Do you remember the first time we see Ruth doing therapy with that guy who has the breakthrough? It She has this, this bank of LED lights that are going back and forth. Uh, yeah. remember yeah. that? So that yeah. is from a, like a very recent, uh, treatment, like therapeutic, uh, actually trauma therapy modality called EMDR or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing that involves hmm. calling to mind. Um, it, it has some like CBT things in terms of them, like calling to mind a, uh, troubling memory or a troubling kind of experience, right? Uh, thinking about the kind of the, the feeling, um, that goes along with it, identifying a faulty cognition underneath that mm. that uh, mm. that feeling. So, like, I am helpless. I am worthless. I can't ever do this. You know what I mean? Like, uh, evaluating how true the faulty cognition felt at the moment of the trauma and how true it feels today, and then. Watching the light bounce back and forth for like 30 seconds, uh, being exposed to a bilateral stimulus that moves your that moves your attention back and forth. And they can use the the LED ones. Uh, They can use a beep in headphones that goes left ear, right ear, left ear, right ear. Or you can hold buzzer paddles that just like um, that Mm. buzz like your cell phone buzzes in your left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand. Right. So she's doing. So Ruth is doing some. And it's actually it's actually interesting because like uh, as with the past and future coexisting in the narrative of Russian doll, um, this is sort of the past and the future coexisting in a very current trauma therapy um, practice because it is it involves kind of like revisiting narrative and kind of telling the story of a bad thing that happens, bringing Uh it into the present and kind of reevaluating your position vis-a-vis that trauma Uh and vis-a-vis the person and the assumptions that you had at that. But then it also involves this like technological thing of like these, you know, rave lights that you stare at with your <laughs> eyes. And as your as your eyes go back and forth, for whatever reason, that is the subject, I think, of some research right now, like moving, um, moving your eyes back and forth or having that two sides of your body, two sides of your brain kind of stimulus uh, periodically at kind of varying levels of intensity, for whatever reason, unlocks um unlocks this sort of thing. And so like the the way the therapy actually works, I've I've done this in case you haven't f- sussed that out by now. The way it works is that you then like something comes up. Like I I it's like effing magic. Like something comes up uh in this process and you go through the next iteration of the same process. Like what is the image or the experience or the memory that came up? What was the feeling you had? What is the cognition? How does it, how true does it feel back then? How true does it feel now? And you do another round almost like a Russian doll. <laughs> gotta get up. Gotta get up. <laughs> yeah. I like, you start describing this. I'm like, Oh, that seems like the process are going for. Like, dying again and again. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I, 
thought of this when I first watched the show, but now they might explain the EDMR, but it's even more like that. I feel like that was like a neat little visual boiling down of the themes of the show, therapy and video games, because it's a bright, shiny light. (laughs) (laughs) One other thing on the video games is uh, we we, we haven't really talked about it a whole lot. Like, uh, remember the game that she, at least that they play in in the show is not some modern first person shooter or something like that. It's an old school side scroller. Yeah. Right. And also uh, it is alluded to that it is difficult in the way that all video games used to be difficult, right. That into the to the point of the show, you kept dying over and over again. It's like the brute force. You have to repeat, repeat over and over again until you master the challenge. I think that is uh, not unintentional. And there is a lot of even just the way that she and Alan are talking about it. It is the way I remember talking about like like Mario Brothers and things like that, right? Where it's like, all right, well, so like after we, you know, it's like after we get past the stairs, then we have to get past the deli, right? And uh, then after we pat, yeah. you know, get past the deli, you have to like um, remember to look both ways when you're crossing the street, right? And there is a lot of these. Um, it is all about pattern and pattern recognition, um, and so it's interesting, right? That there's one style. Of of trying to play the game, which is around remembering the patterns kind of in the line, right? It's linear. Um, but then this kind of the deeper solving and winning of the game is around going deeper into the layers, right? Going deeper into the Russian doll rather than staying on the surface of any one um, layer. And, and it's, it's how you end up by going deeper is how they end up jumping in the kind of final level in back into the two timelines right and and kind of re by going into the like the innermost child layer in the penultimate episode is how they then restart um into back into the the original timelines right which is like sort of the final boss battle yeah Yeah, and i think the video game thing is interesting too because there's even like i think the character a lot of the side characters are like the i don't know like the people you talk to in zelda i forget the term for that like the non-player characters yeah non-players yeah the npcs right like they have very limited scripts right i mean birthday baby right like how many times (laughs) right they have like limited scripts like there's even one moment in sort of one of the later deaths where like maxine is dancing by herself and she just very creepily says like i can't go with you maxine come with me to the deli i can't do that Right. Uh, well, and that's the same one where the daughter, her ex-boyfriend's daughter, is there, and she like coughs up blood, and the the girl just kind of dead eyes her, right, while she's <laughs> while she's coughing up blood, and it's a little bit like this is outside the parameters of my programming. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But but Ryan, I think what you're saying before is that that the quest eventually is to discover the warp zone. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 exactly. It, right. It is like each time you kind of have this moment of awakening, then you kind of warp down into another an, another dimension, right? Or another, like a deeper, I, I think, um, deeper down, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, There's, uh, I well, feel there, like, there, sorry, yeah, you, you changed the subject because I was about to. Well, I mean, I think that, and, and maybe this is a, a slight side, but I feel like, one kind of, I mean, it's worth thinking about some of the hows and wheres of the warping happens. And and I think we you know, are talking about some of how some of the side characters are on these narrow scripts, but then there are some of the side characters are not um, and, and kind of have a little bit more. I don't know if agency is the right word, but are, are kind of associated with some of these realizations. I, I guess I wanted to talk about horse a little bit, <laughs> um, right? Let's let's talk about horse, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Um, Just to be clear, um, you're talking about one of the the, the drifter in Tompkins Square Park that we see over and over again, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And and the 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 gutter punk. Um, and and I say that because is I he think too that, old to be a gutter punk? I mean, drifter sounds sounds very genteel, but like, is he too old to be a gutter punk? I don't know. Like what. What do we describe him as exactly? He's a, yeah, a homeless. I mean, he's a homeless person, you know. He's horse, man. He's <laughs> horse, and he's holding oatmeal. You yeah, know? I feel like it's implied though that he's like homeless by choice, right? That he's like sort of, sort of like a, like it's like a drop out, like he's dropped out of society purposefully, like and intentionally, uh, rather than there's like a systemic thing that 
pushed him into homelessness. Right, because there's, the, there's an episode pretty early on. I think it's like episode three is where she it really encounters him deeply, right? Mm-hmm. And then he kind of, he was like, yeah, I was like developing the dark web in the 90s and then just like had to get out of it all, right? It was all bullshit or something like that, right? Yeah, um, no, he, he says all of that. So I think that puts him in like, I guess it's like by describing him as gutter punk, it sort of fits with this like, it's not like that he's like actually like, a punk, a gutter punk, but in some ways it's almost more like like recognizing some sort of like he made some intentional choice. Mm-hmm. Like, or, or there's like an intentional choice somewhere along the line like, yeah. that led to these circumstances. I mean, at least I think that's implied. And, and you do have those moments of wisdom, I guess, in terms of thinking about like the kind of leveling in or the warping in that he's associated with is is when he gives her the haircut, right? And he he gives a speech when he has cut her hair and he holds up the cut hair and says, you know, this is the old you. And then and then uh and then you know touches the hair that's like still on the on her head and says, this is the new you. And kind of that idea, I mean there's almost like a the gutter punk baptism or something. <laughs> um and it's it's interesting. I don't know. What did you guys make of horse throughout and maybe especially I've I've puzzled a lot over the very last scene of the show um, of horse in the deer mask or stag mask leading the bacchanalia or bleeding the parade through the tunnel. Um, and I, I'd love any, uh, I have, I, I've come to some thoughts, but I'd love any, any interpretations on, uh, on, on, on horse and the parade. <laughs> I mean, that's well, so this, this like, this is where this sort of fan theory, um, the Jason Zeneman uh, theory that like this is all this show is really at least it's not all about in the sense that it's a secret code, but that it's it's concerned with riots that happened in Tompkins Square Park in the uh, in the eighties and concerned in general thematically with uh, a sort of tension that I guess kind of it was ever thus, but like a tension between. Um, you know, uh, society being for, in some sense, it's it's mainstream or for its vanguard, right? And that that like horse represents, I don't know. He he sort of represents a couple things. Like one is the detritus of the system. Like he got mm-hmm. you know he got chewed up and spit out by the first dot com. Uh, uh, you know, boom or whatever, right? Like the kind of the old, like quasi anarchy, like dark web. I connect with the kind of like anarcho libertarian um, mm-hmm. thread mm-hmm. of the internet. Uh, you know, the idea that like we're uh, outside of the jurisdiction of any nat- nation, that we're outside of the, the kind of the norms of society, that each you know each person is kind of living as he or she sees fit uh, on the internet. No one knows you're a dog. Uh, and that like no one can tell me no one can tell me what to do no one can tell me can tell me what to say right like and that that is sort of an exhausting way to live uh, if you participate in it for for very long and you you generally uh, die or get a job at an investment bank or uh, like of course you kind of <laughs> chew, get chewed up and kind of spit out you know spit out as a uh, uh, as, you know as as whatever a drifter right like as a kind of a non uh, as an itinerant person, you know, and that like um, so, and and then he's also the sort of he's also the sort of human cost that kind of has to coexist uh, with gentrification because like it can't be gentrification can't be for everyone, and one of the signs. Um, one of the protest signs uh, that was held at that uh, Tompkins Square Park riot that that I saw uh, reproduced in the New York Times article I read about it was uh, uh, gentrification is class war. And I thought, na, 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 bra. Gentrification is class war by other means. (laughs) (laughs) And that you can't, uh, there can't be a class war by other means unless there's a kind of, um, unless there's an enemy. You know, and so gentrification gentrification needs an enemy. Class war needs an enemy, and like so, it's kind of a necessary condition of uh, of you know of the the mainstream society that there that there be a horse. But then he's also kind of connected to these people who kind of elect to live in a, a, a kind of a sort of generative, a positive, a generative force, a counterculture, a, a cultural vanguard, an avant garde. Um, 
kind of movement or something like that and is connected with the sort of worth uh you know with the sort of worth of these people and there was to a certain extent like the um that to me ryan those last moments as we went from like four quadrants to two quadrants into one picture right Mm -hmm. like the last those last moments were about integration, right? We're about mm-hmm. kind of like put it, put, putting the baby back in the doll and putting that mm-hmm. doll back in the next doll and putting that doll back in the next doll and that doll back in the next doll. And the idea, you know, the idea of a parade, right, is this, it's one thing, but it's many people, it's many agencies, but it's, you know, it's anarchic, but it's goal-directed because it's moving forward, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's sort of joyful, but it's also so carnival so it's like uh it's tweaking the society a little bit but it manages to kind of create uh an ad hoc society uh a little bit and so to me it was like that was a picture of you know it it was almost a normative claim right like about like what life looks like when it's just good enough for everyone to kind of get along in the parade yeah go ahead yeah no it's it's interesting because I mean I think I think the show, I I don't think that necessarily this is like the a interpretation of the show that is like particularly the most salient one but I, I think if you want to have like a kind of Game of Thronesy losty view of the you know view of the show you can right and I do think there's this kind of like enough like of the technical plot details of the universe built are um kind of like like give it this kind of like maybe like this could go into like a a whole other like technical level of information about how the universe works for future seasons because you end the parade ends with like several nadia's walking past her right so this is like a real detail right in that like right as it's gone to two you see actually another another nadia walking the other direction right? right um in in the like and they sort of converge behind right it converges behind her and i do think um, I think there's something about like, I mean, this is again, again, this is a kind of like the losty games of Fronzy, like kind of getting hung up on maybe some of the more like, what are the technical details of this universe right, and solving the mysteries and solving the mysteries um, aspect of the show. But I do think there's something about like Tompkins Square Park, you know, as like one of these like constants in the ever changing Lower East Side, you kind of almost start feeling like, is this kind of like the stone and outlander that would get touched and you would time travel, right? Like it's Tompkins square park, this kind of by being this almost constant, it's like some weird like vector for time, time is a time travel zone. I don't know. Right. And then in some ways it then puts someone like horse almost as like a, I don't know, like protector or like, you know, I think like it kind of puts like the people who live in the park then as like, obviously being sort of clued in on the larger mechanics of this universe and the like weird time travel capacities of Tompkins Square Park. Right, they're the mystical keepers of of like the of the time time travel park. Of the time travel part. Right. And I, I think <laughs> I mean this is something like again, I I mean, I kind of think you could read into I wonder if this is like a like I maybe I'm reading too much into it, but like I kind of see this as being like a a kind of weird, like very technical, like trying to solve the mystery reading right. of this some is, of the larger how mechanics of how the universe. I mean, works. this is a a sci-fi solution to a psychotherapy problem, right? Right. <laughs> right. And, yeah, and I think, that, yeah, it's, al- it's ultimately not it's not not solvable at the end. Right. I feel like right because right. you have these two distinct realities. Um, right, Natasha's POV and Alan's POV, and they're yeah. irreconcilable with each other. Each other. I mean, on screen, right. visually and thematically, yes, they have reconciled, but through like you know the literal interpretation of the sequence of events that happened up until that point, yeah. um, you know, there's there's no kind of like technical solution to that, and I really hope that there isn't one yeah. in the yeah. future because like you know, leaving it open ended and um, having it more of an allegorical. Uh, significance to it. I feel like it's just like it's that is satisfying. Anything beyond that probably would not be. And there's one other piece of imagery here that you know we've we've had kind of the allegorical um, and kind of historical interpretation of this final scene, and then the kind of potentially more sci-fi uh, interpretation. And I think one other is religious and spiritual. So as I was trying to think about what the symbolism of the stag mask is, um, and looking a little bit, and one kind of prominent 
cultural use of stag masks um, are in um, Buddhist parades and kind of specifically um, uh, a Buddhist um, monastic dance called the Cham Lama dance, um, right? And so, it, which features dances by monks and nuns um, and uses bone trumpets, uh, horns from uh, like horn symbols, chants, uh, and uses a lot of um, like animal deities like deer, demons, skeletons, um, and is a um, and I'll, I'll I'll send this link to put in the show notes uh, on a, an article on uh, Tibetan Buddhist art, right? But they, they say this is a allegorical dance about the victory of Buddhism over the negative powers and demons. <laughs> um, and so I think evoking that type of of dance, of that type of monastic dance, um, I think fits with some of these themes. And I think there are themes around Buddhism and kind of rebirth um, and kind of some of the ideas from Tibetan Book of the Dead um, that are that are floating around here. So I, I think that it's not just one of these, right? And I, I think while I really like the New York Times, like it's the gentrification stupid argument, I, I think it is a little bit that almost falls into the I have cracked the code um, <laughs> uh, uh, rather than the it is like kind of all of these things, right? Um, uh, inter, uh, uh, intersecting with one another, right? And it is the historical and the spiritual and the mystical and the kind of sci-fi um, coexisting uh, at once, which which makes it kind of powerful, um, even as it resolves with other things that are unresolved. Yeah, but Ryan, the the I mean, the it's gentrification all the way down, right? Because the the <laughs> the whole thing, the you know, I think the last noble truth, right, is that like uh, you escape suffering by getting rid of your attachment to Jamba Juice, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm. I mean, I'm being. I'm being glib, but actually, like the 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 central tenet of Buddhism is that life is suffering, or the I guess the four, right? The four noble truths, right? Life is suffering. Uh, suffering attachment is the root of suffering it's possible to escape suffering and then the way to escape suffering is to follow the um oh i forget the, the buddhists love numbers i think it's the eightfold path eightfold path yeah, yeah. and that that like the eightfold path involves like essentially disengaging from the material or not necessarily disengaging with it but relating to the material world as something that's that's transient that's temporary that is um you know that is subject to change that is kind of always reconfiguring and that you shouldn't kind of build mm. your house on sand right and mm-hmm. that there is a kind of there is a kind of um uh, a deeper bedrock of reality and that mm-hmm. you can that you can experience through things like meditation through things like monasticism and right. and things like this so right like uh uh, so, like, on the one hand, like getting, you know, letting go of the Krugerrand or mm-hmm. or the the uh, engagement ring, right, and not basing mm-hmm. or or and the 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 harder one in actual Buddhism is kind of letting go of your ideas about yourself, which is like related yeah. relating yeah. to what we've we've talked about and just yeah. kind of experiencing, just sort of experiencing flow, uh, like yeah. being the the but materialism sort of represent represented by you know the the all the fruits of gentrification all the kind of material changes uh the fruits there. of gentrification that are whipped into that jamba juice smoothie right yeah <laughs> uh exactly uh, what matt just said about letting go of your ideas about yourself just reminded me of something and it it actually comes from a review of lost in translation i think but it i i found it and wrote it down because it really feels like it fits this show it says Arguably, this is the lesson that both protagonists are taught by their fortuitous meeting, that identity is not found when one is conceptual and aloof, but when one is open to the world's changeability and its power to affect and change us. Hmm. And I thought, you know, it's a bad loss in translation, but I thought it fit Russian dolls so well. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I, 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 if you had just told me that that was a quote from a review of Russian doll, I would have yeah. believed you, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because it's about. I mean, the the interesting thing there there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of like systemic answers. One is, I mean, one is sort of thematic, what you know, and has to do with with material with uh, historical materialism, maybe, and like a kind of dialectic between uh, the square community and the bums, as they say in the Big Lebowski. Um, 
you know, and the bums lose, the bums always lose, but then like the bums are, are curiously attractive. Uh, and that's like, um, that's one way to look at it. Uh, therapy is another way to look at it and the kind of like spiraling inward to the, to the self or to the inner child, the baby at the center of the Matryoshka doll. Uh, religion is another way of looking at it, whether it's the kind of the interesting connections to Buddhism that Ryan, uh, found or like the meeting with the rabbi where the rabbi talks about kind of mystical truths that are, uh, unavailable to mystical truths that are unavailable to kind of intellectual ways of knowing. But then I think like sort of finally it ends with, um, it ends with a relationship, right? With Nadia and Alan, uh, just kind of connected to each other. And I, I kind of don't need it to be a romance or a French. I don't need it to be anything in particular. Uh, I find as a viewer of the show, like I'm not more or less gratified if it goes one way or another. It's just the, the important thing is that these people are sort of connected to each other. Right. And that that's like, um, that like what gets, you know, what gets, uh, unlocked, in life relationally by just being kind of open, not only to the changeability of, of, um, the material world, but the changeability and the kind of the immediate experience of the people, uh, the people around you, like, uh, the way that Alan kind of just didn't read the signs from his girlfriend, you know, uh, or like, uh, uh, or that sort of Natasha was sort of uh, she's and not Natasha uh, Natasha Leon plays Nadia uh, Nadia is closed off she's in her own world she uses substances she uses you know one night stands she can't get into a relationship she's doing all these things to kind of shut herself down and like be uh, be kind of locked into this this solo thing that the t- the two of them. Um, you know, need to find each other, need to, need to meet and need to just kind of be open to the like the give and take. If I'm not wrong, I think the first thing that uh, Nadia does that kind of takes her out of the unproductive loops of dying and dying and dying and into figuring out what's actually happening is going over to horse and talking to him and actually connecting with him for the first time. Yeah. Um, Right. Which leads her to uh, go to the homeless shelter and prevent his boots from getting stolen, right? Yeah, and that's how she meets Alan, right? Right, right. Yep, there you go. Sort of acts acts of service. Much like we come together on this podcast to talk with our smart, funny friends and feel like deeper layers of meaning for all of us are hey, unlocked. Hey, Matt. Yeah. Hey, Matt. Let me cut your hair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. You're, you're like two decades too late. <laughs> All right. All right. This has been the Overthinking It podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to Rachel, to Amanda, to Mark, and to Ryan for podcasting with me. Uh, we will be back. Oh, if, if you were playing the alternate reality game that was going on through this podcast, uh, the podcasters who use the word milieu in their uh, discussion are Matt, Mark, and Rachel. And the podcasters who did not use the word milieu in their uh, in their conversation, losing the game, are Ryan and Amanda. You'll you'll cycle back for another time loop, though. <laughs> you can play <laughs> next, <laughs> and you can play next time. Um, we'll be back next week uh, in this particular milieu with uh, the Overthinking It podcast. Until then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, 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 doesn't. deserve. <laughs>